Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 19. And if you don't have one but want to follow along the Black Bibles, you'll see under those chairs, you can turn to page 456 in the Black Bible there. We're continuing the series in the Psalms called Collide. Emotion meets truth in the Psalms, and we are learning how to do that. Uh, we do that in private prayer. We do that in accountability, friendships with other believers. We do that as we wrestle with God emotionally in prayer and praise through corporate worship, everyone gathered together. Uh, but there's this theme in all of those places where we're bringing our very real emotions and circumstances to God. We're being honest with Him about our situation, and we're also speaking His words back to Him. And as we go through that honestly, uh, colliding our emotion with His truth, it's transformative. It, it changes us. We start to be awakened to the reality of God's grace to us, His goodness and His truth. We'll see this in Psalm 19 today, which is a psalm about creation and the revelation that God gives us there. We're calling it Collide with Revelation this morning. That means that God reveals Himself, that God is communicating to us. And we'll also see in this psalm that God reveals Himself in His Word. So He reveals Himself in all of creation and then very specifically in His Word, and we'll talk about how we should respond and, and see that modeled in the psalm as well. So follow along with me. Psalm 19 says to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation you've given us here. We thank you for the revelation that you are pouring forth outside in this very moment through the work of the heavens. God, we pray that you would transform us. Lord, I pray for those this morning whose hearts are struggling. We pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. You'd help us to listen to your word. You'd help us fight through any distractions and hear what you're saying to us. Help us to listen to your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just Friday night, we were coaching a football game. I helped to coach my son's team and a couple of our defensive ends. We were barking orders out, you know, uh, football coaches yell a lot, but it's not always just because we're mean. Sometimes we're just yelling so they can hear us, right? 
because the fans are screaming and it's, you know, far distance out on the field. So you're screaming directions. And we scream to one end, Lance, rush hard. And then we scream to the other end, Gabe, Gabe, do the same thing. And it occurred to me, does Gabe think we meant do the same thing as Lance? Or does Gabe think we meant do the same thing he did last time? Because the coach meant do the same thing you did the last play. But hearing it through, through my ears, I hear this other coach yell. I'm thinking, wait, maybe now Gabe thinks he's supposed to do the same thing as Lance. And maybe he's confused. Have you ever felt that way when it comes to God's word? Like he's shouted directions to you. He's told you what to do. And you're like, wait, did you mean this or that? And sometimes you can get a little confused. You can feel like, I don't know if you've made it real clear to me what your will is, what you want me to do in this situation. And I want to, I want to challenge you a little bit with that. I'm, I'm, I use that illustration to sympathize with you to say, I know what that's like. I've been there, right? But what the scripture says in Romans chapter 1 is that God clearly communicates who he is, his power, his glory. And it's not that we don't hear him. It's that we stick our fingers in our ears, right? Any of you have kids? Somebody, any people in here? Um, this happens sometimes with my kids, generally perfect, sweet, obedient children, right? But sometimes I would give them clear directions and they wouldn't do what I say. Oftentimes, I had one particular child this happened with a lot. Often this child would say, I didn't hear you. And I would lovingly encourage her that it's her job to hear me, Right? Like, that's her job, to figure out somehow that she can hear me. Because I knew I had said it clearly. I knew I'd said it loudly. I'd known the other kids would hear it. So this one needed to work more at hearing. And really, that's what Romans 1 says of us. Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth about God when we see him revealed in creation. And our job is to listen better. Our job is to hear him, to pay attention to the revelation that he's given us. And this... Psalm is a beautiful psalm. It's a great poetry. C.S. Lewis, who, who was a, a literary critic, said that this is one of the best poems of all time, of, of all literature, one of the best poems that ever exists. And what's ironic to me is this poem, this poem, how do you say it, poem or poem? Poem, poem, okay, we're mixed. That's all right, I'll say it both ways. All right, so this poetry here is about, it's about the poetry that God's pumping out day after day, Right? He's communicating to us constantly. He's giving us this beautiful picture, this beautiful speech about himself constantly. Our job is to listen to what he says. Our job is to pay attention to what he says. I talked a lot last week about how there is uh, this kind of scientific worldview that says, let's just look at the phenomena, let's just look look at the data, and let's not pay attention to God. But we're challenged to draw the connection. We're challenged to draw the connection between science, the data, and God himself. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at the stuff and go, God, you're awesome. That's our job. So hopefully we'll we'll be encouraged here how to do that. In the uh, history of theology and just the way that scholars like to talk about the scripture, they usually divide up revelation, this idea of God revealing himself into two major categories. And I think they get it from this psalm. You see two big categories here. If you were following along with me, it may have almost felt like the the psalmist kind of jerked your head in a different direction, right? Right around verse six or seven there. Feels like he's talking about the heavens and the sun and God's glorious. And all of a sudden, your law is great, God. And you're like, wait, what do you, why'd you switch there? 
And the switch is that those are the two kinds of revelation. Those are the two ways that God speaks to us. God speaks to us through the heavens, and God speaks to us through his word. And so we usually divide that up and talk about general revelation, big, big idea. He's generally revealed himself to everybody all the time and everything. And then special revelation, sometimes you might say specific revelation through his word, through Jesus, through the gospels, through the Bible. So the first thing we're going to look at here is in this first section is general revelation. Verses 1 through 6 lay out that he's constantly speaking to us. He's pouring out speech to us. It says in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The, the version we read earlier in the service, Chris had us read a portion of this in a different translation. It said craftsmanship, right? Here it says handiwork. We saw in a previous psalm where it talks about his fingers making the stars in the heavens. God is this master artist. And we are supposed to look at his art and be in awe. We are supposed to be amazed at it. Just say, God, this is beautiful. This is awesome. We should just be, we should be amazed. We should be overcome. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then here he says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And so, you know, like when you give some, a kid instructions, you give a player instructions on a team, you might think, well, I just told them that one time, so maybe they forgot. Or maybe they didn't hear me, right? Here he says, day to day, he gives this instruction. Night after night, he pours out this speech. It's again and again. Every, every morning when you wake up, God is talking to you. There's a sunset out there. Some days are more beautiful than others, but every day, Day to day, he's pouring out the speech. Night to night, he's pouring out the speech. The heavens are always there. The creation is always there. It's always pumping this information out to us, revealing God's glory. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Glory in the Hebrew is this word kabod, which literally means heaviness. And so I gave this translation to the morning service, see if you like this. I said it kind of means like umph, right? Like it's like, ugh. Like that, that's kind of what it connotes there. It's just like this... God is so big and, and awesome, and it's hard to even have words to express that. Glory, weightiness, impressiveness. God is substantial. Talked about his name, Yahweh, meaning he is. Like everything else, we're not so sure about, but God is. He is heavy, he is weighty, he is real. So day to day, the speech is going out. Night to night, this knowledge is going out. And it says in verse 3, a little confusing, and this is going to vary in different translations. It says in verse 3, in the ESV, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It's a very confusing construction in the Hebrew. Uh, I looked at it, and I'm not good enough at Hebrew to really be able to give you much on this, but what happens is the scholars all agree that verse 3 is a difficult construction, so they translate it in different ways. But the way I would summarize it is this, is that God day after day, night after night is speaking to us. And in the Hebrew, it's trying to say something like, well, it's not really words, right? It's not like text falling from the sky and we're catching it and arranging it on a page. He's communicating without actual words, right? So it's not a voice we're hearing, yet there is speech. And so it's hard to communicate that, obviously hard to translate that from one language to another. But the idea is that day after day, he's revealing himself, he's communicating, he's saying stuff, and the author's like, don't get me wrong, it's not actual words falling out of the heavens, it's, but it is communication. 
it is words. It's not really words, but it's words, right? He's still talking to us. We're still responsible to hear what he's saying, and we can understand that language. Even though it might not be words on a page falling down from heaven, and then we read it, it's still words. There's still language there. Verse 4 backs us up. It says in verse 4, their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So a reinforcement of what he was already saying in verse 2. He's saying it again in verse 4. So then we would take the kind of unclear verse in verse 3 to say, okay, it's speech, but it's not exactly the way we speak, but it's still speech. It's pouring out day after day. We can't avoid it. We hear it every morning, every night. We hear him talking. We can't say, I didn't hear you. We heard him. The problem is we are sticking our fingers in our ears. The problem is we're saying, I don't want to hear you. He talks about the sun and starts to really paint this beautiful poetic picture. If you look at uh, halfway through verse 4, he says, In them he set a tent for the sun in the heavens. He set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now this is supposed to be a glorious image for you. Um, Who's the most important person in an American wedding? Who's the star of the show? The bride, right? Many of you have been to a Middle Eastern wedding? Anybody here? No. Well, just guess, based on the Hebrew text, who do you think is the most important person in a Middle Eastern wedding? The groom, right? The groom is the star of the show. So this is a little confusing for us because we're like, the bride's the important one that everybody turns and everybody stands. You know, I do weddings and I have to remind people to stand up because here comes the bride, right? And, and you're supposed to all focus on her. But in a Middle Eastern wedding, in the Hebrew context, the groom is the star of the show. So he's painting a picture here. And in case you don't get it, then he he uses another image there in the second part of verse 5. He says, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Sometimes be translated warrior. But it's like this great hero, right? The champion is coming. I I thought back to the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s. And so I grabbed a picture here of Michael Jordan. (laughs) But when I thought of a strong man running his course with joy, that's what I was thinking of Michael Jordan literally flying through the air, right? This, I was just thinking, I was just imagining the sun as it moves across the sky. Those of you that are scientists, you know I know the sun's not really moving across the sky, right? No, okay, just making sure you know that. that. But that's phenomenologically how we talk about it, right? We see it moving like this, and it reminds us of a strong man running his course, of a groom arriving to the wedding party. The sun is the great champion of the sky. It's, it's the great strong men, right? There are these lesser lights. There's the moon. The moon is awesome. The stars, the stars are many and beautiful. There's clouds, there's birds, there's beautiful colors in the sky, but the sun is the champion of the sky. It's like the hero of the story. Saying in verse 6, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The great strong man of the sky, the sun, still its job is to point to God, the glory of God. It has this role to picture the glory of God in his general revelation, his universal revelation, how he's revealed himself to the whole world. He's revealed himself through his creation, through the heavens, through what he's made with his hands. Louis Giglio is a teacher that has taught at a lot of conferences, and you can like find YouTube videos of him. And he's, he is often fascinated with how creation declares the glory of God. Have any of you ever seen some of Louis Giglio's videos? He's got some really interesting videos about science and things that you see in creation. Just really cool stuff that he discovers, and then he'll share that. One video I saw recently 
was him sharing recordings of the electromagnetic transmissions of pulsars, right? So pulsars are these weird kind of stars that just kind of like pump energy out into the universe, and they just oscillate and keep going and keep going. So he's playing this rhythm for you so you can hear what they've recorded, right? We have these giant telescopes that record the transmissions of the stars. Like the stars are making music and rhythms and sounds, and he in this kind of interesting video, he matches that recording with the songs of the whales, right? You've heard the whales. I won't try to imitate their singing here, but they make an interesting sound too. And then he takes a worship song and he kind of mixes that in and blends that all together as a DJ. And it's, it's pretty awesome. And his point is that there's constant music being pumped out into the universe just by the stars, not to mention just what we see, right? Here, we're just talking about what we see. We see their glory, and we're in awe of, of the artistry of God. God is the great artist, and when we see God's art, we should praise him. And we should be that kind of artist too. God calls us to be artists that paint pictures for other people. Some of you are creative. You're artists. Some of you, uh, you might be athletes. Sports is a type of art, right? When we see Michael Jordan sailing through the air, like, that's art, Right? I mean, that's, that is performance art. That's what we do when we do sports. It's just like learning to paint. It's just like learning to play an instrument. You practice, you study, you work within the boundaries of your genre, and then you perform. And it brings glory to God when you do that well. Some of you aren't uh, painters. You're not athletes. You work in a cubicle somewhere, right? God wants that to be beautiful too. God, God wants you to do that for the glory of God. We are all artists. We are to be like the creator God that has made the universe. We are to imitate him in the way that we live our lives. We are to study. We are to be committed. We are to throw our heart into it. And we're supposed to paint a beautiful picture. Colossians 3 says that we should work heartily as unto the Lord, not to men. So an application for seeing God's glory in creation is to recognize I'm a creator. I'm a, I'm a little creator, right? I have my little... My little world that I am to form and to fill and to shape, and I'm supposed to do things here, and I'm supposed to reflect God's glory. I'm supposed to glorify Him is the way that we say that, by doing things beautifully, by making Him look good. As I run, as I work, as I organize things, whatever gifts, whatever talents I may have, I am to use those for the glory of God as an artist, just like my God is an artist. Another application that I think is important is to remember that we are morally responsible for God revealing himself in the world. So those of us that are skeptics, and I've admitted to you guys before, I've struggled with skepticism of the world, with doubt, with kind of a critical spirit, kind of a Rene Descartes, if you know philosophy, his his, uh, position has been kind of coming out of doubt, like the only reason I know anything is by criticizing and doubting things, and that's a tool that a lot of us have used in time, and that's a tool that's taught in schools is to kind of doubt everything and to question everything. But we have to remember that the Scripture says we're morally responsible for the way that God has revealed himself in creation. Doubt is fine. Wrestle with your doubts. Talk to me about your doubts. I'd love to hash through those things with you. But remember, you are morally responsible. God has spoken. God has spoken. Romans 1 says we suppress the truth. Psalm 19 says, day after day, night after night, he's pumping, revealing, showing his glory in the world. And we are responsible to respond to it. If you want to understand better what it looks like to imitate our great creator God, I have a book up here that you can look at. It's called uh, Echoes of Eden. 
think I brought it up here. Maybe it's in my office. Yeah, it's in my office. Echoes of Eden. I've got other books up here you can look at on the subject. But uh, Echoes of Eden by Jerem Bars is a great book that helps you to understand how to be a creator the same way God is a creator, how to be artistic, how to display God's glory in your art and in your work the same way God does, and he analyzes uh, artists and literature. And it's just a great read if you're interested in that from the artistic side. Um, but I would challenge you to reflect how God creates things, how God points to his glory in your daily life. What's your job? Are you a parent? You are to glorify God as a parent. Are you a teacher? You are to glorify God as a teacher. Are you a soldier? You are to glorify God as a soldier. You are to run your course with joy the same way the sun does and reflects the glory of God. That's what we're called to do. We're called to, to point to him and we're called to recognize him in what he's already done. The, the next thing that we see is the idea of special revelation. So here, like I said earlier, it feels like he's turning our head all of a sudden. It seems like this all of a sudden jerk. But what you see as you stand back and look at the whole psalm is that God is showing that he's revealed himself in two clear ways. He's revealed himself through the beauty of everything that he's made, and then he's also revealing himself here specifically in the Scriptures. And so when we look at creation, we are to acknowledge God. And when we're not sure how to do that, we can go to the special revelation of the Scriptures to understand how God is creator of everything and how he is the one that's made the heavens. There's a lot of intramural debates that Christians have uh, over the actual process that God used, right? And we would say that Scripture is absolutely clear that God is the one that created everything and he created it all for his glory. But then we're going to have about 20 different positions, if I just polled everybody, 20 different positions of how God went about doing that, right? So we just want to recognize that in our culture, we are called to be on the same team with each other, pushing back against our culture that says you can't acknowledge God in creation. That's breaking the rules of science, right? They would say science is all about just looking at the data. We would say, no, science is looking at the data and then pointing to God's the one that made it. God's the one that made this. Now then, the debate will fall out in how. What's the process? How long did he take? How did he do it? What processes did he use? Well, we're going to debate about that. Different Christians will disagree about that. But the clarity of, of our special revelation in the Word is that he made it. He made it, and he's pumping that information out to us every day. Romans 1 says his divine power is clearly seen in what is made. It's our job to listen. So now the psalmist is turning to the special revelation, saying part of how I listen to what God has said is in creation is by recognizing if he's big enough to make all things, he's big enough to get things straight in his word. And so in verse 7, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is just ecstatic praise. Like he can't stop himself from praising how great God is and how God has revealed himself in his word. He's going on and on about it. And what I want you to understand is that we sometimes will read this word law that he repeats here. We'll think of law through the context of how Paul criticizes uh, Judaizers in Galatians and Romans. You may not be familiar with this. If you're not familiar with this, just you know, throw this paragraph out. But if you're familiar with Romans and Galatians, you've read it a lot, you thought, well, Paul kind of comes down hard on law keepers. What Paul is 
criticizing in Romans and in Galatians is he's saying there's people that think that they can perfectly keep this law and so justify themselves before God. They can be good enough. They can keep enough of these boundaries of the law that they will actually have a righteousness of their own. And what we try to remind ourselves every week as we pause in confession, as we look at God's word together, is that we don't have a righteousness of our own. We can't perfectly keep this law. We love his law, but we can't perfectly keep ourselves this law. We can't keep all the rules. We can't do everything right. James says if you've broken the law in one part, you've broken the whole thing. And so that's what Paul's talking about. Where Paul's talking negatively about the law, that's what he's talking about in Galatians and Romans, is those people that think they can justify themselves through law keeping. But here in the Old Testament, it's more of a general catch-all term for uh, direction. God telling us what to do. God showing himself to us. It's a Hebrew word, Torah. And it just means God revealing himself. God's direction to us. And the psalmist here just goes on and on about how awesome that is. How amazing is that, that God would talk to us? The God of the universe that made all things, he's pumping his glory out into the world through creation. He also communicates with us specifically through language. I said earlier that Psalm 19.3 is kind of communicating that, okay, it's not necessarily human language falling from the sky in the form of texts or pieces of paper, but then he has done that too, right? So in creation, he just shows himself through his art, but here in the word, he specifically directs us. He tells us what to do. He tells us who he is. He describes his character, his holiness, and his love for us, that he's a God that will save us, that will protect us. And so you see the author going on and on about how great God's law is, how great God's direction is. He's saying, because I love God, I want to know what he has to say. Because I trust God, I want to know what he has to say. And I'd really encourage you that if you struggle to have this kind of attitude towards the scriptures, it's because you haven't been convinced that God is gracious. Once you've had an encounter with God where you recognize that God has paid for your sins, that he's gracious, that he loves you, that he's the kind of God that adopts rebellious children and saves them by his work and not theirs, then that changes your heart. That's what we talk about when we talk about being born again. Your mind is changed about God. You have a change of mind. You repent. You change direction. You say, I used to to despise God. I used to stick my fingers in my ear when he communicated through creation. Now I want to listen to him. So once you've had that heart change about God's goodness towards you, then you're going to begin to want to know what he has to say. Then you're going to want to love his law. Then you're going to want to say, okay, what does God want me to do? And you're going to listen more and more. You're going to become transformed by it. It's this process that we go through. Some of us are at different stages. Some of us move along loving his law, and then we drift, and we we begin to forget his goodness to us, and then we drift from his word. That's one of the beauties of of worship and the beauties of looking at his word is it reminds us of his grace. He is good. He does love us. And so we can love his word. It's this beautiful image he he ends with at the end of verse 10. This climax is they're, they're better than gold, right? It's, it's more expensive than the most expensive thing we know. And then he switches to a more kind of gut image of honey. Any of you like honey here? Some of you? Okay, honey's sweet. Some of you don't like it. Okay, so those of you that don't like it, try to imagine something you like, right? Like insert uh, great steak or fajitas or guacamole or what, you know, whatever your thing is, like insert that here. 
But he's wanting to appeal to us at just this, this normal everyday level of it's, it's delicious, right? It's satisfying. I have a picture here uh, trying to torture you and make you hungry before lunch of, of hot bread with butter melting and honey poured all over it. That's, that's the kind of image. That's the kind of image. Yeah, pe- people are murmuring. <laughs> that's the image, right, that God is painting here. Of it's, it's satisfying. It's sweet. Right? He's not saying, your word is a burden, God. Your directions are annoying, and why do you always want to tell me what to do? That's, not, that's how we often talk about God's word. And when we talk that way, that's a sign that we don't, we don't really know God. We don't really know how gracious he is. When we've had that change of heart and we understand how gracious and how, he, how good he is to us, then his word is like honey. It's like something good. It's something, something that we, we want, something that we love. We have a statement about the scriptures in our church constitution. Uh, so I know a lot of you love to study all of our founding documents and you read it every day, so you're probably familiar with this, right? But we have a doctrinal statement in our church constitution. The first statement before the rest of the doctrines that we outline from the scriptures is a statement about the scriptures, right? That makes sense. We think we get our teaching from the scriptures. We're going to start with a statement about the scripture. And we say it this way. We believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We get that word from 2 Timothy 3.16. It's literally breathed out by God. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God, by which we understand that the whole Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is inspired in the sense that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of Scripture. We believe that this divine inspiration extends equally and fully to all parts of the Scripture in the original manuscripts. We believe that the whole Bible and the originals is without error. So when we say we believe it's without error, that means we believe we can trust it. There, there's no mistakes there. And so we, are, we happily throw ourselves in this camp among Christians. You know, there's different kinds of Christians so, we, you know, I try to play down those differences often, but here's, we'll show our colors here. Okay, surprise, we believe in inerrancy, okay? Inerrancy is, is a particular camp of Christianity. There are real believers that love Jesus that wouldn't like this term, right? And I would still consider them brothers, but I would say that they have a crack in their system. We, we believe in inerrancy, and what that means is we, we believe it's true. A lot of my friends that don't believe in inerrancy, they would say this, they would make this distinction, that... They believe that the Bible speaks truthfully about issues of faith and practice, but not about science and history. And I understand their, their issue there, but I would, I would say two things to that. One, I would say I'm, I'm afraid that they consider science and history inerrant, but not the scriptures. And so there's kind of a, there's a built-in conflict they have in their worldview there. The other thing I would say is that the most important event spoken about in the scriptures is an event of science and history. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection from the dead didn't happen, this whole thing is a waste of time. Matt Chandler said one time, it's like a stupid hobby. Like, go throw a Frisbee. Don't do this if you don't think it's real, right? It doesn't make sense. But if it's true, it changes everything. And we would say the central message of this book is that God invaded time. God invaded history and science, and he changed things. We all believe the normal course of things is death. And you know what? In the first century, they believed that too. It's not like they were stupid people that could be tricked, right? And they thought that he rose from the dead when he really didn't because they were dumb first century people. We're smart 21st century people with iPhones, so we know better, right? (laughs) We know that when people die, they're really dead. Well, they knew that in the first century too. People didn't rise from the dead in the first century just like they don't rise from the dead now. 
And the central claim of Scripture is that God broke in to history. God broke in to science. He changed things. And so I would, I would challenge you, just by way of application, I would challenge you, when, when you go somewhere else, find teachers that will pull their teaching out of the Scripture instead of grabbing teaching that seems uh, admirable, that seems wise, that seems smart, that seems current, and then grabbing a verse to go with it, Right? Because I know we have a transient population. A lot of you are going to move. In a couple of years, you're not going to be here. Find, find a place where you can learn from the Scriptures, where someone will teach you from the Scriptures. Um, the other thing I would appeal to you with is if you are a skeptic about the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, to investigate it. Most of the, and I'm not saying you're in this camp, but most of the people I know that don't trust the Scriptures, they just heard one professor or they watched one Discovery Channel series that said it's not trustworthy. And they're like, all right, not trustworthy. I don't have to listen anymore, right? I would challenge you to investigate it on your own. It, it, really, it is trustworthy. And you can, you can investigate it. When I came to Christ, I fell in love with Jesus first. And then I still had a lot of questions about the Bible, about science. I, I didn't quite trust the whole system. I just knew Jesus was awesome. I fell for him. And then I was like, but help me figure this out. A lot of this doesn't make sense. And spent years trying to work that out. And I would challenge you to, to work that out. Don't just walk away from it but give him the benefit of the doubt. Investigate the truth of the scriptures for yourself. The last thing that we want to look at then is our response to Revelation. Do you have that humble response to it? Or are you just putting your fingers in your ears? In verse 11, he says, Moreover by them, talking about the law, Moreover by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So there's this idea that there's a blessing in doing what God says. Now, again, we want to distinguish that from what we would sometimes talk about as the legalistic keeping of the law, where you think you're impressing God by being so good, right? Like where you think, well, life is going badly for me now, but if I go to church 10 weeks in a row, God will have to give me more money or have to bless me, right? We would say, no, he's not a, he's not a vending machine, right? But he tells you what to do, and if you do things the way he says, that's generally going to work out better than if you do things not the way he says, right? He, he made you. He made the universe. He knows how things should work. And we would say we generally understand that there's great reward in keeping God's word. That doesn't negate what Jesus says, that if you follow him, you've got to carry your cross. That in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. He's overcome the world. We know there's going to still be struggle and pain and disease in this world. But he's saying there's great reward in obeying God and doing what he says. He's a good God. It says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He's saying, we don't have the strength to figure out our own problems. We need a doctor looking in on us from the outside. So the psalmist is saying, who, who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's this uh, section in Leviticus 4 and in Numbers 15 where the Old Testament scriptures talks about ways to atone for hidden sins or accidental sins. They make a distinction, right? We kind of understand this common sense-wise. There are times when we just outright shake our fist at God and do, you know, we just say, I know, God, you want me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. And we go the opposite direction. There's other times when we hurt someone accidentally. The scripture says that we're still responsible either way. Sin is sin. Even if we weren't as sure about it one time and we're more sure about it another time, it's still sin. So the Old Testament lays out that there's there's a path of forgiveness for both kinds of sins. And here the psalmist is recognizing that, saying, I'm just stupid sometimes, right? The more we, the more we reject God, the more we walk away from him. In, in Romans, it says that we darken our own hearts, that we start to lose 
all our faculties. We can't even think clearly. That's why it's important to live in Christian community uh, so that you can have other people looking in on your life as well and other people that are reading their Bible going, well, now I, I see you're saying that you're righteous and it's everybody else's problem, but have you considered this? Right? It's, it's good to have outsiders looking in as well and not just uh, be determining your own way. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. It says in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So saying, let these sins not have power and dominion over me like I'm in chains. I have a picture here of a chain gang. The idea throughout Scripture is that we think that we'll have freedom by walking away from God, right? We think of him as this ogre, this taskmaster that doesn't want us to have fun, and we think, well, if I sin, I'll have freedom. But those of you that have been sinning for years, you can testify that it becomes slavery, right? It becomes chains on our souls that we can't get rid of, that we need help. We need someone from the outside to rescue us and to pull us out. That's what he's talking about here. He says, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to encourage you that he reveals God as a rock. He reveals God as a redeemer, someone who invades space and time and saves us when we are uh, enslaved to our sin. You may feel stuck right now, and you may feel like, well, I've got to clean this up, and then I'll call on God to have a relationship with me after I've cleaned this stuff up. I want you to understand that if sin has dominion over your life, just call on God. See him as the Redeemer. See him as the one that rescues you. The the story of the Scripture is not, we rescue ourselves, and then God is so impressed with us, he becomes our friend. That's That's not how it works. God is gracious and awesome and rescues us from our sin. We, we got ourselves stuck in a hole. We got ourselves in chain, enslaved to these sins, and God will rescue us. Call on him. Don't wait until you've got it cleaned up. Call on him to help you now. We have a ministry on Monday nights that I announced earlier in the service called Celebrate Recovery. It's a ministry that focuses on helping people work through specific hurts, habits, hang-ups that they just feel stuck in. I'd recommend that to you. We also have some books up here that I'd recommend. There's a book called Redemption. It's the best book I've ever read on the subject of helping you work through, by the power of the gospel, work through the dominion that sin has on you. Sometimes it's our own sin. Sometimes it's other people's sin, right? Sometimes we abuse ourselves. Sometimes we've been abused by others. Redemption is a great book. Again, it's by Mike Wilkerson. And it does a good job of helping you unravel that tangled web. So a lot of times we've been sinned against, And then we sin in response, and it's just this big mixed-up web, and we don't even know what's ours and what's somebody else's, and God will help set you free. God is our Redeemer. He says, God is my rock, my Redeemer. There's another book called The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender that I would recommend again if you've been abused, if you've been hurt. It's a great book to help you work through that. And another book, Another thing that I would recommend is a sermon. My assistant, Jim, spoke on the problem of sexual assault in a sermon, May 26th. You can go online. You can find that sermon. He did a great job helping us work through what it looks like to call on God to rescue us out of that pit. But I just want to encourage you that no matter where you are, God is a gracious God. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. He is our hope. So don't wait until you've cleaned yourself up, but call on him. Ask him for help. I'd love to talk to you myself if there's anything you'd like to talk about. There's also people 
with a prayer badge on. They would love to pray for you after the service. We're going to conclude with one final song. Uh, I want us to remember that as we think about the revelation of God, that we have general revelation that he's always communicating day after day that he is great through uh, the beauty of the sun, the, the stars, the heavens. And then he gives a specific revelation in his word. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it really beautifully paints this picture of not only has he in the past spoken to prophets that have wrote down his word, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. Jesus is the final revelation that shows us that God is indeed holy. He is perfect. He wants us to be just, but he's also gracious. So gracious that he died for us. He took our place on the cross. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you gave yourself for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God that reveals yourself. Not only are you just, which is often terrifying to us, but you are gracious and forgiving. We thank you for that. We pray that you'd help us to live in line with this gospel truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.